Oh, hello. It's Monday. Sportsnet 590, the fan. It's the fan drive time. I'm Ben Ennis, uh, back after a week's vacation and uh, stepped right into the maelstrom, it appears. Yeah, Blue Jays stink. We'll get to the stinking Blue Jays and their stinky ways uh, playing a Nationals team. Hey, I mean, they stink too. But not since the All-Star break. They've actually been one of the better teams in Major League Baseball since the All-Star break. Blue Jays two and a half games back of a playoff spot now after losing two of three to a team that also stinks, the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, they got the race on the hill tonight. Kevin Gossman against the Nationals' lone all-star. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk Jays later on in the program. But I mentioned it's the Maelstrom because in a surprising move, although probably not that surprising if you've been listening to this program over the last couple of weeks, John Herdman moving on from Team Canada and becoming the next head coach of Toronto FC. Yes, the man who led our women's national team to a couple of Olympic bronze medals, setting the stage for their eventual gold medal victory, who took the men's program to their first World Cup since 1986, will not be around when Canada hosts the World Cup in 2026, as reported by our next guest. He's been all over the story from the uh, get-go. It's Josh Cloak of The Athletic. Uh, thanks for doing this, Josh. What a day. This one kind of came together pretty quickly, if I'm being honest. Um, you know, word kind of trickled around this afternoon. Um, essentially, once John Herdman started informing staff, um, and my understanding is he only just, you know, as of less than an hour ago, finished informing Canada Soccer players, staff, um, that he will be leaving. So this one came together very quickly, and Canada Soccer just officially announced it. Um, a few assistant coaches heading out as well. But it's also been one of the worst-kept secrets in Canadian soccer for the last few weeks. But it, it is a complete um, game-changer in terms of what the men's national team looks like, in terms of what TFC looks like, and, and you know, as you mentioned off the hop, in terms of what 2026 is going to look like here in Canada as well, right? Yeah, this this is a big news story, and and you're right. Yeah, this is this has been brewing for a while. Um, whether it, John Herdman was going to land with Toronto FC or somewhere else, it seemed like he was destined to leave the, the the national program for reasons that you outlined in in your initial piece today. Like, if you had to put your finger on it, what what is the determining factor that um, created the divorce between John Herdman and the Canadian national team? I think there were two big factors, um, you know, pretty close to equal as well. I mean, the instability in terms of Canada soccer's finances, that, that has to be a factor here. Because if you're John Herdman, um, you want to be able to spend and utilize the same amount of resources that, you know, your rivals do. And we're talking about Mexico. We're talking about the United States. But unfortunately, Canada soccer, you know, and the men's national team spent more than they ever have just to get to the World Cup. And now they're, I know that, you know, reaping what you sow is a little harsh, but that's kind of where they're at. The bill has now come for the men's national team in Canada soccer, and, and they're in kind of dire financial straits. They weren't able to book any friendlies. First, only were able to book one friendly in October, and, and, you know, the United States has four friendlies throughout September and October, so that should give you an idea of, you know, the kind of financial limitations that Canada soccer is going through. So I'm sure John Erdman looked at that and said, do I have everything I need to prepare this team to the best of my abilities come 2026? That's part of it. But I do think the recent results that, that the men's national team 
have experience, and we're talking about after World Cup qualification, I think that really led to some people in and around the national team looking at John Herdman a little bit differently. You know, John Herdman himself deserves a lot of credit, probably more credit than any other men's national team coach in the program's history, for overhauling the program and getting Canada to the World Cup. That can't be understated. He is a terrific man manager. He's a fantastic coach. But I do think there were some players within the men's national team that wanted more specific tactical instruction, that wanted more tactical nuance from John Herdman. And once they went 0-3 in the World Cup, once they lost the Nations League in a pretty embarrassing fashion to the United States, I think there were some people that were started to, to wonder what things would look like with another head coach. And I think John Herdman ultimately saw that and said, can I take this team? Is this team united under me? He's an incredibly smart, sharp man. And he probably looked at this team and said, if this team isn't completely united under me, I don't know how it's going to get any better before 2026. So I think those two factors, and then you have the opportunity as well to take TFC back to the promised land, right? Like if, if you're John Herdman, you look at TFC and you say, there's nowhere to go but up with this team. And they are a team that is going to get a lot of media attention. They're going to spend a lot. They're going to have the resources. So it's a pretty safe landing spot for a coach that had always wanted to get into club football, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the way you describe it and, and talking about the results since the World Cup or the results including the World Cup, but yeah, Nations League after that, and uh, you're reporting about how the, the players weren't exactly as thrilled with John Herdman as they were going through the CONCACAF World Cup qualification. Is it is it fair to say that this is an amicable divorce? It's probably as amicable as you're going to get, right? John Herdman, this is no secret, right? What's What's been happening, you know, I don't think this is going to come to a players and create some tension, you know, with the players, that, you know, in the same way that happened in, in 2018 when John transitioned from the women's team to the the men's team, I think that was quite a shock. Again, if you follow Canada soccer, you would know that, that John Herdman has kind of been planting the seeds of discontent with the program for a while now, for a few months now. Um, so I, I, I do think this is amicable in the sense that uh, anybody who knows John knows that he wanted to transition to club football. And anybody that knows John and knows the program knows that, you know, John's final stop was never going to be the men's national team. Mm -hmm. So I I don't, I think when you understand that the surprise here is quite limited, then you can say, yeah, this is pretty amicable. Um, Because again, this has been brewing for a while. You have to remember that a few months ago, when it was reported out of New Zealand that John had, you know, was in talks to, to take over the New Zealand men's national team, Canada soccer and John himself we're all over that, denying that right away. No one had been denying this story for the weeks that we'd been kind of tracing it. So I think this is not going to come as anybody that's, you know, in the Canada soccer program. All right. So so now that it's over, his, his tenure with, with Canada soccer, both the women's team and the, and the uh, men's national teams, how would you describe his legacy, what he was able to accomplish with those two teams? Well, I mean, he got the men's national team to the world cup, right? He, he took a team that four years before that, you know, had no business even thinking about qualifying for a world cup. He was able to take them to the biggest sporting event on the planet. And he was able to do that by raising the floor. And I think that's something that I know that doesn't sound very glamorous, but 
I, I think it is. John was able to, to work with limited resources in the beginning. He was able to get players to believe in the potential of qualifying for a World Cup in the way that they had never had. So he shifted the kind of collective mindset of a program that had just been drowning in its own sorrows for decades, right? I think that's very, very important, his ability to raise the floor. What he was ultimately not able to do, and this is not necessarily a fault of his because, you know, it, it changes happen. He wasn't necessarily able to raise the ceiling of the team. And I think that's going to be the really important next step for this program is kind of challenging the likes of Jonathan David, Alfonso Davies, Tejon Buchanan, players that are, if they're not world-class now, they're going to be world-class come 2026. You have to provide these players with the kind of tactical instruction that they need. Um, John wasn't always able to do that, but I think the fact that he got Canada to a World Cup and he really got people talking about Canada soccer in a different way, um, I, I think that's really important because as anybody knows, as everybody knows, you know what, five years ago, would we even be talking about Canada soccer on the radio? No. Never, right? No. So that that's an important part of John's legacy is that he got more people interested in the sport and the sport's potential as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and he ended up on the cover of a Croatian newspaper too. Yeah. No, he did a lot of things. Uh, no, he, 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 he man. What a uh, what a, a an incredible decade plus uh, with the Canadian national program. So now we yeah we look forward to to somebody who can raise the ceiling. Problem though, Josh, is that yep. Canada soccer has no money. So so how do how do we resolve that? Well, there's a few ways that they could go. First of all, Canada soccer has announced that Moro Biello, who's been for a while now. He works with the team's forwards. He's going to be the interim head coach. I would suspect he'll be the interim head coach for their October friendly against Japan. Um, there's a few ways you could go about this, right? One way that you know Canada could get a profile, a big name coach, is by attracting you know more sponsors and making sure that they sponsor you know and, and their specific image rights for the coach himself. Um, and you can raise money that way to kind of literally pay for, a, you know, a high profile, big name coach, you know, from global football. But a name that I really am keeping tabs on closely and I think would be an excellent fit for the men's national team is Bobby Smyrniotis. He's the head coach at Forge FC, you know, Hamilton's team in the Canadian Premier League. He's won three of four CPL titles. And what's important to note about him is he's a really great tactical, he has a really great tactical mind. Um, he's kind of the opposite to Herdman in that Herdman is a very, you know, rah-rah, you know, speech-heavy guy. That's not what you're going to get from Bobby. And, and Bobby as well, he has developed, worked closely with the likes of Kyle Lair and Richie Larea, Tejon Buchanan. These guys are going to be starters in 2026. So I think if Canada is serious, if Canada soccer is serious about kind of promoting their own, developing their own, mm. and that could apply to coaching as well. I think Bobby Smyrniotis is undoubtedly the best coach in Canada right now. It would be quite a leap from the CPL to the men's national team, but uh, you know, and this isn't to, to, this isn't a slight on Bobby at all. He would probably be able to come in at a pretty affordable number. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why he should be in consideration as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, he would, he would, he would sign up on, on the cheap. Um, and no offense to him, but I mean, we are talking about a team that is, well, just played in the world cup and is most assuredly going to be 
uh, playing in the next World Cup when they host it in 2026, although I don't believe that's been officially announced. But we all uh, imagine, as one of the host nations, Canada will get an automatic entry. Like, if they were... I mean, take money out of the equation. Is it a, an attractive job for, for somebody? I, it's got to be one of the most attractive jobs in terms of international football right now because you have yes you have a, a you know an organization that is unstable financially sure um but what you also have you know is is an organization in the CSB Canadian soccer business i know it's a pretty divisive organization but they are regularly funding the men's national team so there will be regular funding there and look like i, I we don't like tooting our own horns too much but canada is a great place to live like canada is a if you look at you know, what, the 40, 45 most desirable jobs in international football in terms of places to live, Canada's right up there, mm-hmm. right? And and the chance to work with, you know, Alfonso Davies, the best left back in the world, Jonathan David, who come 2026 will undoubtedly be playing for one of the top 10 clubs in the world. To be playing a World Cup at home is, is something that, I mean, a few months ago I would have thought would have, you know, kept John Herdman in Canada, but these are all desirable factors. But I think in, in, you know, as I mentioned, I think living in Canada, the opportunity to live, you know, in a great country is something that will have a lot of people inquiring about the position. Yeah, no doubt. As long as you don't have to buy groceries or gas, you're fine. Um, sure. <laughs> all right. Before <laughs> I let you go, I, I want to get your thoughts on TFC, who stink to high heavens, despite having, I think, the highest payroll in, in all of MLS. They are, they're not, as you write, mathematically eliminated from the, the playoffs, but the, they're in last place um, because, you know, Inter-Miami now is messy. Um, they're, they're in an abominable shape. And I, it was Lorenzo Insigne who walked out of training the other day. We know the the, the deal with Bernardeschi. Those, those guys have had issues throughout the season. Um, is that a union that can work? Like, is, is, is John Herdman going to be expected to lead those guys or is there going to have to be a major separation this offseason? Yeah, I think we can expect a, a serious overhaul in the roster um, come the offseason. John is going to take over the team um, on October 1st. So there's going to be a transition period. Um, and come October 1st, the season will be almost finished anyway. My understanding is Bill Manning, TFC's president, um, gave or, or, or told any head coaching you know, or prospective head coaches, you are going to have the green light to complete a full overhaul of the roster. So does that include Lorenzo Insigne heading out? Does that include Bernadeschi heading out? Um, you could make the argument that it should because they haven't delivered to their potential and they haven't certainly haven't delivered to their salary as well. You know, likes a specific type of player. He likes to play with pace. He likes to attack the game. Um, he also is great with, you know, working with young players as well. So look, it remains to be seen who's going to stick around. But I think we should expect some major changes just because, you know, coaches like Herdman were given the green light to do what they need to with the roster. Uh, it's an incredible story, one that's been brewing for a while, Josh, and uh, and you've done some great reporting on it. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks. Anytime. All right, there's Josh Cloak of The Athletic, who's scrambling. It's all official now. Toronto FC releasing their press releases. Canada Soccer also releasing their press releases it's happening and it makes sense and as josh lays out it is pretty amicable because john herdman eventually wanted to make the move to club soccer and 
the players for Canada soccer, seemingly had soured on John Herdman, which is, I must say, a little bit shocking. And I understand the reasons, right, tactically. And, boy, people that know way more about soccer tactics than me will tell you the mistakes that he made at the World Cup and beyond. But I can't tell you how many Team Canada players I had on during that World Cup qualification run who could not stop themselves from gushing about the impact John Herdman had on that team and being one of the primary reasons why Canada was through to its first World Cup since 1986. That was not 100 years ago. Canada just played in the World Cup in December. We're talking about like last summer, okay? That the players would have uh, soured on him that quickly, I must say, is I guess a little bit shocking and maybe slightly concerning. We'll see. But for John Herdman, it makes plenty of sense. One, I mean, did he reach the pinnacle of Canadian men's soccer making a World Cup? I hope not. But maybe they didn't look so great in those three group stage games. And then since then, as Josh mentioned, uh, floundered a little bit in the Nations League. And he's probably getting a pay bump. He's working for certainly a more stable organization in MLSE than Canada soccer. And he's got nowhere to go but up. TFC stinks. They're going to go scorched earth this offseason. And... Wouldn't you like to be in charge of the team with like seemingly limitless resources coming off one of its worst seasons in franchise history, considering this used to be one of the worst organizations in North American pro sports? And wouldn't you like to be the guy to lead that team back to relevancy? And wouldn't that be a nice little piece to put on your resume as you tried to go back overseas to, to club uh, football in England, which I think from most people's accounting, is where John Herdman is ultimately going to land. Anyways, crazy story. Uh, we're going to stay on top of it until we sign off uh, at 5 o'clock. But let's talk a little bit about those stinking Blue Jays. Um, because things have changed quite a bit the last couple of weeks. Because a couple of weeks ago, they were not that less stinking, but they were solidly into a playoff spot. And you could see a scenario in which things made a little bit more sense offensively or they started regressing closer to their expected results, the mean, the runners in scoring position stuff. Maybe if Vlad's results started matching the exit velocity. Yeah, man, a team with the second-best ERA in Major League Baseball and seemingly a lockdown back end of the bullpen top four starting rotation with lots of swing and miss in it, that could be a World Series contender. Well, now we're talking about a team on the verge of squandering one of the best pitching staffs in franchise history if things play out the way they have to this point. Blue Jays with a team ERA 3.72, that would be the fifth best in franchise history. They're on the verge, like mere weeks away from wasting that. And despite the fact that everybody makes the playoffs in Major League Baseball, Blue Jays are on the verge of not making the playoffs as they trail the Astros by two and a half games. And it was announced today 
will be without their third baseman for at least 10 days. Matt Chapman put on the 10-day IL. Ernie Clement recalled. Uh, Bobachette, I guess, is day-to-day, which is weird. It's apparently not the, the knee injury that he suffered. It's a leg injury that has also been something that he's been dealing with for days prior to his removal from the game yesterday, which is also curious because I know Paul DeYoung had, like, no hits. He had, like, negative hits in his time as a Toronto Blue Jay, but he was at least a capable defender at that position. I think we've seen enough of Santiago Espinal this season to to understand that he's not an elite defender at that position, and boy, not much happening there offensively. Uh, and the Blue Jays are staring up at some beasts of the American League West. Now, I guess maybe there's only two beasts because the Seattle Mariners are insane right now. How about this? So Blue Jays go into Seattle in the middle of July, and they lose two out of three to the Mariners in pretty heartbreaking fashion and some Teoscar Hernandez walk-offs. Since that series, the Mariners are 26-8 and eight with a pair of eight-game winning streaks. The Blue Jays are 17-17. and 17. The Mariners were the Blue Jays before the Blue Jays became the Blue Jays. They were a team with one of the best pitching staffs in all of baseball that couldn't get the offense figured out, and all of a sudden, Julio Rodriguez started hitting like he's supposed to hit, and here they are, not only in a playoff spot, but atop the division as we're almost in September. So you can talk about regression and, and, and the numbers eventually getting to where they're supposed to be. And boy, it's just a matter of bad luck for the Blue Jays. Okay, maybe. Maybe they're about to go on a five-week heater here. But it's already happened for Seattle. And you can talk about a, a team deserving to, to have better results in situations that they've had negative results all you want until it happens it's all theoretical and is there a possibility that the blue jays just go 162 games underwhelming in the most crucial moments in baseball games 100 percent possible uh doesn't look great right now gotta say i tweeted out yesterday that uh, after the finale of that three-game series against the guardians that despite the blue jays being outside of a playoff spot before that yesterday felt for the first time for me like the first time the Blue Jays felt like it was an unlikely scenario that they made the playoffs. You know who agrees with me? Stats. Fangraphs has them now at 48.6% chance of making the playoffs. Best scenario for the Blue Jays, actually not with the Mariners anymore, naturally, because they're atop the division. And it's certainly not with the team that is coming off a World Series victory in the Houston Astros, who you got to figure are going to figure out some way to get this thing done and get into the playoffs. It's the team that's lost nine out of 10 and that you have four games left against the Texas Rangers and the Blue Jays lost two to three in Arlington earlier this season before the all-star break. But if they take three to four, they'll own the tiebreaker there. They actually own the tiebreaker against the Astros as well, doing the same thing. They lost two to three in Houston, then back home won three to four. So they own the, the tiebreaker against Houston. They control their own destiny to a degree against the Rangers with those four games still to go, and they got the sad sack slate of games upcoming. But, boy, the Guardians were a very beatable team, and they had their worst uh, starter going in the rubber match of that series, and the Blue Jays still couldn't figure it out. So it's not great. I, I, would, just, I would just mark it all down as just very much not great for the Blue Jays. We'll see. Uh, maybe David Schneider can go from hitting a home run a game to two or three. That would help. All right, when we come back, here's a good news story. The golden generation of Canadian basketball seems to be finally fulfilling its promise. 
Although the 30-point victory over France looks less good considering they lost to Latvia as well. But they're through to the second round. They will wrap up the first round of action tomorrow morning, 9.30 on Sportsnet, against the Latvians. And then you got like Spain and probably Brazil in the second round. We'll talk to Doug Smith of the Toronto Star next. The fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Dive deep into Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sportsnet 590, the fan. I am Ben Ennis. Again, the news of the day is uh, John Herdman leaving the Canadian men's national soccer team to join the worst team in MLS, Toronto FC. Just three years away from this country hosting a World Cup. It's curious, uh, but there you have it. All right. Um, the other men's national team of note, Doing pretty well for themselves. Uh, Canada threw to the second round of the FIBA World Cup after convincing wins over France and yeah, Lebanon as well. Uh, they'll play Latvia tomorrow for the chance to finish on top of the group. Let's talk to Doug Smith of the Toronto Star. How's it going, Doug? Not bad, Ben. How are you? Got any thoughts on John Herdman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'll... Yeah, I think... Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> okay. I You're just going to keep him to yourself? I think this speaks more, more loudly to the... Uh, situation in Soccer Canada than it does for the MLS or John Urban. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And uh, we'll see how they're able to backfill that with uh, the limited resources that they have. All right, so that that's a bummer. Well, <laughs> you can polish your resume. You can polish your resume. Yeah, I, I used to work on a soccer show. I've been following this story. I watched all the games of the World Cup. Shouldn't I be qualified enough? After you probably work cheap, too. There you go. You're in. Uh, very cheap, uh, comparatively, especially. All right, so yeah, uh, <laughs> Canada basketball looking good. Um, I, I do wonder, though, after, boy, uh, some embarrassment for the French national team program, some harsh words being shared there by some of the players as well. A little bit of the, the shine worn off that, that opening victory that was so, so dominating, and the second half was so great, and Shea looked so good. Is, the, is there any bit of the shine washing off after the way Latvia was able to beat them as well? I don't think so. I think I think if they had, if they had sort of snuck out a win over France and France turns out to lose to Lebanon and get there to Latvia and gets eliminated, there there might have been. But they were so good compared to themselves against France. And I don't think I think people should take that for what it was. They beat a very good team resoundingly with a great second half. Yeah, they did. Um, what was the most encouraging part of of that game? And I I don't know. If you want to throw in the the Lebanon game, you can, where they set the the tournament record for assists against a team that's obviously not quality. But like, what what has been the most encouraging thing you've seen out of uh, Team Canada through these first two games? I, and I know this this is coach speak, but I think the way they've guarded, they really defended very very well, and we knew that Dylan Brooks and Lou Dort were going to be good uh, FIBA defenders. Um, Kelly Olenek has played really well defensively. Dwight Powell has helped protect the rim, and the, their lack of size hasn't killed him at all. And I think you're seeing 
Shea Gillis Alexander and Nikhil Alexander Walker, who is a very prime, is a prime NBA defender. You'll see them sort of take that challenge on, and that's what's going to separate them, I think, as the games get you know, much more important in the next five or seven days. Yeah, uh, they obviously do, and and we we're we're soon enough going to hit uh, a single elimination yeah. portion of this tournament. Um, so we're I, listen. I'm learning about Jordy Fernandez. Sorry that I I wasn't well versed in his work uh, as an assistant in Sacramento. I know Brian Windhorst wrote a, a story about him the other day as well. That he's hey, he was a guy that was very much on the radar to land an NBA head coaching gig, and he did interview for that gig with the the Raptors before taking this this job. I mean. Can you can you parse out his impact on this team? You know what? I think his best attribute is that he's been very calm. He hasn't come in and tried to change anything. He's he's uh, not trying to be the like the face of the franchise or face of the team. He's, he's developed relationships with the players. I'm shocked, and I knew I knew Jordy before he got in the process of being in Toronto, Milwaukee, and Phoenix. He's not an NBA head coach yet, and I don't think it'll be too long before he is. But I think with Canada, he's come in and he's sort of he calmed everything down. It could have been, it could have gone off the rails with Nick Nurse leaving. What three weeks before the tournament started, or before the mm-hmm. trading camp started? It kind of got, could have gone off the rails fast, but he handled it very, very well, and that's going to be his, I think, his legacy for this year, at least with this team. All right. I mean, the, the the wounds are just open after the John Herdman departure. But like, yeah, Nick, <laughs> Nick Nurse was going to have two jobs, right? If Jordy Fernandez is offered an NBA head coaching gig, he can keep this gig. Like, what? I, I mean, we're putting the cart way before the horse. But like, it is the news of the day, and you bring it up, and I, you know, I raise the specter as well. Like, Jordy Fernandez can do two things, right? Oh hell yeah, for sure. Like, the interesting that Jordy Fernandez coached in the Olympics last year, last time with Mike Brown in Nigeria. Yeah. So if, if he gets Canada to the Olympics, there is no way his next contract in the NBA is going to have, have a clause that says, I am going to the Olympics with Canada. Yeah. I mean, again, not putting cart before a horse a little right. bit. Yes, here. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but like, okay, so, so what does the path look like right now, Doug? Because I, I, I stared at the big PDF document that's on the FIBA World Cup website, <laughs> and I think I'm blind now. Like, I, don't, I, I, I forgot my children's names. Like, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. Explain it to me. It's hard. It's hard to do because it's math, and I don't do math. But, no, the thing is, they basically have to, I think, personally right now, win uh, two of their next three games. Latvia, Spain, Brazil probably will be the three teams they face. Latvia to finish this round, Spain and Brazil in the next round. Two two wins in those three games gets them to the quarterfinals. And one win, I think, will get them to the Olympics because I don't think Dominican Republic can win a quarterfinal in this tournament. And it'll be top two of the seven Americas teams. It'll be the U.S. and Canada. Okay. So, I, you know, they're not there yet. But I think getting two wins in the next three games is absolutely doable. Okay. I, mean, I think they can get okay. Latvia. I think they can get Brazil. And I think they might be able to get Spain again. Yeah, because they played Spain as one of the, the, the warm-up games. So, I mean, how, how similar is this team to the one that played in those warm-up games and, and split some games against uh, Germany as well? But, yeah, it does seem like they're coming into their own a little bit since those, those European oh. games. They, they have gotten better, and I think they're getting more familiar with each other and, and more um, uh, fluid on, on the court together. I do think Spain, when, they beat, when Canada beat Spain in Spain, Spain played possum. 
because mm. that's what teams do in the FIBA. Mm. When you're hosting, when you're hosting, especially friendly games, you don't you don't show nearly your best. And Spain didn't. Mm. So that game in the next round will be a lot different than it was in Granada. But I still think Canada's talented enough to get them. Back to France for just a second, because I mentioned that um, there was some some outspoken players, most notably Nicolas Batum, who said he was ashamed to wear the, the France yeah. colors, which is, Doug, I think last time we spoke, you, you talked about how this is more important than the Olympics for those European nations. Like, how shocking a result was not just the Canada one, and, and maybe not shocking because Canada's, you know, should be on paper one of the favorites of this tournament, but... Yeah, the, the way they've bowed out of the tournament in, in the first round after being, what, Olympic silver medalists? Yeah, I, I think it's stunning. I think it's crazy that they, they didn't win one of those first two games because they're so talented. And again, like you said, Ben, like I said, it means so much to the world. But I do think with France, and maybe it was in the back of their minds, they've got the Olympics sewn up. Because yeah. as Paris is hosting the games, France is in the Olympics. So that thing wasn't out there. But the World Cup is a big, big deal, and they finished on the podium, I think, the last two World Cups, 19 and, and 15. Uh, losing was, as you saw the quotes, they were absolutely devastated by the way they performed on basketball's biggest stage. And I get that the NBA is one thing and the Olympics are another. The World Cup, that's the basketball thing. Hmm. And they were embarrassed by how they played. Um. Describe the importance or, or the stakes for tomorrow's game against Latvia. Because, yeah, they are through. Like, what what would a, a loss mean? What would a, a win mean? Like, is it all that important if, if they're already through? I mean, it would mean, I guess, being seated one or two out of the group, right? I, I, yeah, it, yeah, one or two. I mean, that's not a big deal, really. The record's carried over. So a loss is, is worse than a win, obviously. But what I do think, it, it the biggest thing is if they win, then I think they only have to win one of their next two to get to the quarterfinals. If they lose, they got to beat both Spain and Brazil, and that ratchets up the pressure big time. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow takes a little bit of pressure off because then you've got two games to win one, mm-hmm. and you get you probably get Brazil in the first game in the second round. And if you do that, and you win, if you win the next two games, you're basically through to the quarterfinals and mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. Because then you're playing for medals and Olympic spot. Yeah, and at that point, I can stop adding caveats like hey i don't want to put the cart before the horse because <laughs> the, the yeah, the, yeah the, no the horse will be and you well don't have to stare at, stare at that document anymore yeah. I, which i can't wait to, to not have to do um but yeah like I, i'm just so nervous talking about this team because they've been in so many seemingly uh desirable spots that have not ended with desirable Dave. results doug so it's <laughs> i'm a little hey. nervous go ahead you go back to 1992, I've seen them all. Yep. I saw them lose in 1992 to Venezuela and Portland for the one game to get to the Olympics. I saw them lose in Mexico City, one game to get to the Olympics. I saw them lose in Puerto Rico in 2003, one game to get to the Olympics. This team never wins the game. Mm-hmm. But the game was France, and they won it by 30. Okay. So that's why I think this group might be different. All right. Fing- fingers crossed. And, yeah, they-, they certainly have the talent to do it. All right. I will add the caveat, though, before my next question, not getting ahead of ourselves, not putting the cart before the horse. If they do, in fact, qualify for the for the Paris games, we know that this this national team has had the edict of, hey, this is the core group of guys, and if you want to be a part of whatever we do going forward, you got to sign up for this thing. How 
uh, hard and fast do you think that rule will be as far as maybe expanding the pool of players that they'd be willing to accept headed to an Olympic Games? Well, I understand for European players is, is not the be-all, end-all, but for North American basketball players on the international stage, it's winning an Olympic gold medal. I don't think they will, and I don't think they should expand the pool that much because they asked for a three-year commitment and got it. And they got Jamal Murray to come to camp when he you know, probably really shouldn't have, but he did. And they got guys who want to go all the way. And then I think you can start the next quadrennial after France. Obviously, injuries, age, uh, guys not wanting to do it, lives change in the next 12 months if they get to the Olympics. So maybe there's room for two, three, one, two new guys. Then I think they can expand it. But if this group and the rest of the guys who are in the winter core, Murray or summer core, Murray especially, want to play in the Olympics, you got to take this team to the Olympics mm-hmm. because that's what you said you were going to do. And you got to stay fast. You got to you got to live up to your word. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of beatdowns in the first round of the, this World Cup, Doug. Um, poor Lebanon. Um, are there are there too many teams in this thing? Yeah, there are eight eight too many. Twenty four is the right number. They got the FIBA, which is like FIFA, but not quite as bad, but almost as bad. <laughs> has thirty two teams in a men's tournament and twelve in a women's. You tell me how that makes sense. It, it, doesn't. it doesn't at all. No. So I think the, the World Cup should be 24 teams, four groups of six. You play five games, top two go to the quarterfinals. But that's the, that's the best way to do it. But there are they want to make money and they want to sell TV rights and hosting rights and blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, the, the first round has been basically, I don't know, 80% full of games that don't matter. Mm. And I know people talk about, you want to grow the game and you want to make it more global and more worldwide to help struggling countries get basketball higher in their consciousness. I don't think Lebanon getting beat by 30 and 30 is doing a lot of things for teenage Lebanese kids who want to play basketball. That's big. Yeah. So it's all about money. And there are probably eight teams too many in the World Cup. Yeah. Um, as a good warm-up, I guess, for, for Team Canada, and they, they get to set the, the, the tournament assist record, almost assisting on every single bucket that they, that they <laughs> yeah. made uh, in that second game of the tournament. Um, let's, let's move to, to the Raptors for a second here, Doug, because, yeah, that, that Knicks lawsuit sure. certainly caught a number of people by surprise. Is this much ado about nothing? Is this like James Dolan lashing out? Like, what is this? It's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, as the guy once wrote. Yes. It, there's nothing to it. It's like, it, it is basically a petty James Dolan thing. And it, they should have gone to the league. They did go to the league. And the, the league wants to deal with it. And the league wants to make Ike not eligible to work for the Raptors. It'll do that. Mm. But a lawsuit, the Southern District Court of the state of New York has a lot more things to worry about. One of them being ex-President Trump than they do about the Knicks and the Raptors. This is like, it was like, an overreaction in a bogus, trivial lawsuit that we won't hear of again because it'll get settled, and it'll just, it'll just, it'll be, the story will be, remember the Knicks to the Raptors? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. That was really stupid, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, can't wait for uh, for that. Yeah, a little, uh, I was going to say press release, probably be a tweet uh, down the line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, lastly, before we let you go, uh, a lot of people making a big deal out of the Giannis Antetokounmpo tweet, or uh, not tweet, uh, the quote out of uh, his New York Times piece. 
I would not be the best version of myself if I do uh, if I don't know that everybody's on the same page. Everybody's going from a championship. Everybody's going to sacrifice time away from their family like I do. And if I don't feel that, I'm not signing in regards to an extension with the Bucks. Uh, he has a player option for 25-26, which means he's going to be a free agent in 25-26 because obviously yeah. going to maximize. Are we back on Giannis' watch? Yeah, why not? I think it. I think 29 other teams are. Why wouldn't you be? Like that's you gotta. You have to protect yourself against a possibility, and now that he has raised a possibility, then it becomes real. I, I don't know if he'll leave. I don't know what the Bucks ownership will do. Who, whether they want to commit the kind of money you need to commit uh, to make a championship team, whether what his teammates will look like. You know, a bunch of his teammates are older men. So I don't know what, what, how they will fill those those spots with of Middleton, Lopez, Bobby Portis, those kind of guys. Like who are they going to fill them with? Are they fill them with just players or star players, championship quality players? But absolutely, the NBA. I guarantee you, twenty nine other general managers went, "Whoa, okay, mm-hmm. what's our cap situation look like for twenty five, twenty six, and what can we do to just in case have the space available?" Yeah. Could, could be informing a, a number of clubs' off-season decision-making uh, sure. processes. Uh, Doug, 9.30 game tomorrow, so no, so no quarter to six. Does that suit you better? No, way better. <laughs> and if they win, I think they're going to get two 9.30s for Friday and Sunday. Ugh. If they lose, like they're going to get 9.30 and then 5.45, and that's not good. That's that's not good. It's all right. The better win. That's. I mean, when I asked you what the stakes were, you should have said that because that that seems yeah. important. <laughs> I don't want to wake up at like five o'clock in the morning on Sunday. No, you're right. Uh, all right, Doug. Thanks for this. Appreciate it. All right, Ben. Take care, man. All right, you too. There's Doug Smith of the Toronto Stars. Team Canada looks good. Again, caveats. They all apply, and he's right about the first game of this tournament being the game, which is yeah, a weird way to go into a tournament. Your most important game is the first one out of the shoot when we know so little about your team. And they did destroy France, who then lost to Latvia. Didn't get out of the first round. I know they're the defending silver medalist, and uh, Doug's absolutely correct to point out that their motivation level, not quite as high as other teams that are looking to punch their ticket to the Olympics, like Canada. But yeah, I, I'm I'm not quite ready to say Canada's into the Olympics yet because we've been so damn close against so many beatable opponents in so many late stages of not just tournaments but games, and it just it has not worked out for Team Canada. Fingers crossed, it works out for them uh, this time around. Boy, they certainly have the talent to do so. A win against Latvia again at 9:30 tomorrow morning on Sportsnet would go a long way. All right, we have a lineup for your Toronto Blue Jays in their series opener against Josiah Gray and the Washington Nationals, uh, that Nationals team with a pretty good record since the All-Star break. George Springer's in right field. He's uh, leading off, which is not something we've been used to saying over the last number of weeks. So back in the leadoff spot is George Springer, obviously heating up over the weekend. Brandon Belt hitting second. He's your DH. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at first base hitting third. Davis Schneider... Playing third base and cleaning up, hitting fourth. Davis Schneider, who couldn't get in the lineup for like a week and a half, all of a sudden is the linchpin of a Blue Jays offense that is desperate for a victory. 
He's playing third base, hitting fourth. Uh, hitting fifth, Whit Merrifield is at second base. Dalton Varsho is in left field, who's no longer an offensive zero. He's a guy that you kind of have to have in the lineup. Like, And I was doing some, some mental math about who should be in, who should be out, and how do you maximize your offense uh, in this lineup, even if it means taking a step back defensively. I do think at this point in the season, the way Dalton Varsho's going, you need Dalton Varsho and Kevin Kiermaier in the lineup for offense, not just defense right now. So it makes sense um, that he's once again in there playing uh, left field. Danny Jansen doing the catching. All right. Your new shortstop with Bo Bichette day-to-day is Ernie Clement, who's had a moment or two in the major leagues this season. His track record, which is quite long in the minor leagues, would lead you to suggest that there's not a lot happening there offensively. Like, he's been a league average hitter in the minor leagues, so to expect more than that in the major leagues seems unlikely, but he's playing shortstop today in Kim Kiermaier in center field. So, uh, you know what? In an overall, I'm fine with that. George Springer leading off, sure. I mean, Whit Merrifield is, has been a revelation this season, but George Springer obviously has a longer track record, and if he is going good, why not throw him back at the top of this lineup? And yeah, David Schneider, it seems desperate uh, to throw him into the cleanup spot, but guess what? Blue Jays are very desperate right now. I have no idea what his defense is going to look, look like at third base. Here's my guess, though, not as good as Matt Chapman's. The one question I do have about this lineup, if we're in total desperation mode, which, again, we are, it should be, is the Ernie Clement shortstop thing. And I understand you're, you're not going to impede the development of young prospects uh, just to try and save your season. And there's no guarantee that you're getting better offense out of Arelvis Martinez or Addison Barger but, boy, you have a better shot of it. And, and the upside is way higher than Ernie Clement. Like I told you, Ernie Clement has been in the major leagues before, been in the major leagues this season, picked up big, uh, big hits for, or one big hit that I can recall for this Blue Jays team this season. He's played in the minor leagues for forever. He's been about the same guy. Like league average, nothing special. Aurelvis Martinez, like, led the Eastern League last year in home runs. And he figured out how to stop striking out so much and how to walk a little bit more. And boy, I don't think anybody's calling him the next Ozzie Smith at shortstop, but he's played the position a bunch. Played it a bunch this season. Played it in AAA. Is Ernie Clement some defensive wizard? If it were me and you were asking me, Hey, man, it's desperation times. You just lost your best hitter. He plays shortstop. His name's Bo Bichette. Uh, you need to backfill that at least for a couple of games. And I guess maybe that's the differentiating factor is that, hey, maybe there is a situation where they, they don't intend on calling up either of those guys, even as the rosters expand into September. And if it's only going to be a game or two, maybe you're all right. But, I, like, you – I mean, I guess not literally, but, like, almost literally you can't afford to lose today. And – Maybe Ernie Clement has a, a nice little game, but I'm telling you the upside offensively of either of those guys is much higher, boy, you would hope, than an early uh, Ernie Clement. But this is, the, this is the situation that we find ourselves. The Blue Jays almost in September. September happens later this week. 
have a lineup. And now injuries are a big part of it with, again, if you missed it, Matt Chapman on the IL today and uh, Ernie Clement recalled. Davis Schneider as the savior of this baseball team. It's amazing what a couple of games can do to the thought processes of this team as well. Again, this is a guy that had one of the best starts in franchise history going into Fenway Park against a Red Sox team that, yeah, didn't get anybody out really that entire series. And then cooled off a little bit, but then hit a home run and was working deep counts and getting on base. Couldn't get in the lineup for a week and a half, like forever. And I get it. Kevin Biggio was playing a little bit better. He was heating up quite a bit. But all of a sudden, he's gone from can't crack the lineup against anybody to, oh, yeah, <laughs> hitting cleanup and playing third base for a Blue Jays team that is desperate to uh, pick up a victory. Kevin Gossman looking for a strikeout number 200 on the season tonight. Um, but he's in tough against the Nationals ace in Josiah Gray. Blue Jays uh, starting a three-game series against the Nats. When we come back, we will talk to our pal... John Morosi of MLB Network get his take on the Blue Jays' recent struggles, their potential to make the playoffs in the American League. And to me, honestly, maybe more interesting, what happens to this team in the offseason if they, in fact, miss the playoffs? A season with World Series aspirations ending up on the outside of the playoff picture looking in whose job could be on the line. We'll talk to our pal John Morosi next. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Breaking down the biggest stories in Toronto sports. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, the Van Blue Jays and Washington Nationals down at Rogers Center tonight where... David Schneider is hitting cleanup, playing third base. Sure. Uh, we get to see him play third base for the first time in his Blue Jays career. He's played left field, played a little second base. Hasn't looked entirely out of place defensively. Uh, he will be replacing Matt Chapman, who was placed on the injured list today. Ernie Clement recalled, and he is playing shortstop tonight, hitting eighth in front of Kevin Kiermaier back in the lineup. Um, also of note, Ben Nicholson-Smith, 15 minutes ago, tweeting this out. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. taking balls at third base right now. Looks pretty comfortable. Arm in midseason form, okay? I mean, that's a developing story. I actually, here's what I wanted to come on uh, this segment and say, is that, boy, really does change my thinking on, on the Vlad on the uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. offensive bar if he's a third baseman, not a first baseman. But then I looked up where he would rank in among qualified hitters in OPS as a third baseman. It's the exact same. 14th as a third baseman, 14th as a uh, first baseman this season. But taking ground balls there today, we'll see 
uh, how the week unfolds or the next 10 days at least without Matt Chapman. Blue Jays need a victory immediately. Let's talk to uh, John Morosi of MLB Network. How's it going, John? Ben, I'm doing great, my friend. Hope uh, everything is well with you and your family and the network family there at the Fan 590. And, and yes, I, I'm hoping that this week brings better news for the Jays than it did over the weekend. Yeah, not great. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing the difference one victory can make. But, yeah, even taking two out of three from Cleveland uh, has today uh, feeling much different in Blue Jays' line. As it stands right now, two and a half games back, of both the Astros and the Rangers, although the, the the Rangers won up in the loss column on the Astros. And the Blue Jays have four games left against uh, Texas at home before the end of the season here, John. Two and a half games, though, is it's quite a, a hill to climb with a with, uh, little runway to go. How do you evaluate the, the Blue Jays' playoff chances as we, we sit here right now on, what, August 28th? Well, it's a very important question because we're going to see the, the algorithms and, and different ways of calculating it. The reality is the Jays have not played especially good baseball the last week or so, and the Rangers, to your point, are actually playing even worse over the last 10 games. They're just 1-9 and nine in their last 10. I look at this past weekend as, as a really big data point in, in the wrong direction, that if you cannot win a home weekend series against the Guardians, who are fading against a uh, pitcher in yesterday and Syndergaard, who was DFA'd after the game was over and, and you still couldn't find a way to win that ball game, these are very concerning signs. Uh, I, I happen to think that Texas will correct this tailspin that they're in uh, and, and finish stronger. I think Houston is about to get even better with the return of Michael Brantley. That's going to give them a huge lift. And now you've got the Jays dealing with the uh, the absence of Matt Chapman for the next little while. And I realize that Chapman has not been the same player since April that, that he was in, in the first month of the season. Perhaps this, this injury issue explains some element of that in, in recent weeks. But for me, Ben, big picture, you want to look at the last days of August as, as the catapult to the final month and really showing that you're ready to play postseason baseball. And candidly, we're just not seeing that right now from the Toronto Blue Jays. They're they're a good team, but they're not a they're they're not yet a very good team in my estimation. And they're certainly not a great team. And I, I think that we're we're going to have to see in the next week or so some vastly improved play or or it's going to get late early as the saying goes to where I I think at this point in time, uh, as the way I look at it and the way I'm watching the standings and looking at how the teams are playing, uh, whatever the algorithm says, from my look at it, the the chances are under 50-50 that this team is a playoff team. They they would have to hope that they get a lot better and and the Rangers stay in this poor run of form for them to have a pretty good chance of making the playoffs. No, I'm with you. And and it's shocking to be talking about this team in in this fashion after – you know, many people were picking them to win the World Series before the the season, certainly to be uh, at the very top, if not at the very top, in contention for the very top of the American League East. And here, here they are. You know, according to Fangraphs, less than fifty percent uh, shot of of making the playoffs. If they in fact miss the playoffs here, John, this is a team that just fired a manager a season ago. It's a team with the uh, you know. A little bit of financial flexibility going into next season. About sixty million bucks are coming off the books, but it needs a third baseman. Maybe it needs a center fielder or at least a left fielder because Kevin Kiermeyer's on a one-year deal. Whit Merrifield's on a mutual option, and uh, Hunjin Ryu's money comes off the books. Like 
what what could we see this offseason if, in fact, the Blue Jays not only disappoint um, by not winning a World Series, but don't make the playoffs altogether? Uh, I think they would have to at least consider the possibility of trading Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I, I don't see any other path in terms of making a more athletic and, and more diversified lineup in a, in a meaningful and impactful way than to do that, than to trade Vlad or at least entertain that possibility in a deal that would bring you back a, a third baseman and, and potentially bring you back a, a, a center fielder or a left fielder, depending on how you want to uh, utilize Varsho next season. Uh, we're at the spot now where the, the chances of his camp and the Jays coming to an agreement on what a, a multi-year extension looks like, it just doesn't feel like there's a, a lot of momentum in that regard. He's, he has struggled this year by his standards, and I, I don't see a huge appetite for him to, to base his future earnings off of the production that he's had this year. And, and as you were saying as we came on the air, his production is average for a corner infielder in Major League Baseball, average. Mm-hmm. And now is there, a, is there a team, ballpark, manager situation that, that looks like it might be a better uh, situation for him? Is it Philadelphia, depending on what happens with, with Reese Hoskins and how they view Alec Bohm's future? And would, or would they consider putting Bohm in a deal to get Vladdy? And would that address the Jays' need at third base? Plus, maybe you get an outfielder? I could see that happening. But I, you look at this team and, and the, the free agent group that's out there, I don't know that Cody Bellinger to Toronto is necessarily the way that you're looking at things to have another massive contract in the outfield uh, alongside George Springer. Uh, th- this team has some questions. And, and I go back to this point, Ben. This team is in their window to win it all based on the age of the rotation, the age of the position player core, and it's just not happening. And and one of the I think one of the tough parts about running an organization, I think, in professional sports, especially this one, because you don't have a cap to really uh, tie your decisions to and, and use as a boundary on what you're doing, is to sometimes fool yourself into thinking that that the window is larger than it actually is or that the window started at a different point than it actually did. I mean, I think the window for this team began in 21 when they barely missed the playoffs. And then uh, here we are now in, in year three of it, and we're just not seeing things trending in the right direction. And I think sometimes when you're at that moment, you need to have a, a pretty bold mindset towards what you can do. And, and I would say, Ben, that in an off season in which a lot of reports indicate that Pete Alonso's name is going to be out there, yeah. fine, that's actually great. You know what Pete Alonso's price point is going to be for one year of Alonso? How about two years of Vlad? Mm. If you feel like you've got the hitting coach and the hitting process to get him unlocked, great. What can you offer us? And then make that deal and move forward. Oh, I like that a lot, John. Now, now we're talking Pete Alonso for Vlad Jr. Now, now you got to no, trade. No, I wasn't saying I wasn't saying necessarily that that deal, but who, why not? I mean, yeah. but my point is with, with Pete Alonso being out there is that that it allows you to better price mm-hmm. what what Vlad's going to be worth. But but that being said, that's that's not a bad idea. If you, if you want to if you want to put it out there and say, and let's put it this way, if you think if you think that that winning that you have a better chance to win the World Series next season with Pete Alonso playing first base for the Jays than Vlad, then you should try to pursue that deal. 
because the, the window is not much longer than next year. Maybe yep. you get one more year out of it, but Bo is going to be a free agent after 25 unless you sign him. This is, this is it. You're staring at the window. And if you think that you can do better at first base than Vladdy, my advice is you do it because at this point you keep running it back and running it back with the same group and the results get worse. Uh, that to me is not a winning strategy. No, John, I, I, I like when you said it, and, and yeah, I, it's the permutations ran through my head. I, it makes a ton of sense to me, at least. Uh, and yeah, you, you get a fewer one, a fewer year of control, one less uh, year of control, but you, okay. So maybe the Mets have to sweeten the pot and okay. The Mets aren't ready to win apparently next season, but that's okay. Vlad's only 24. I mean, it, it makes sense for them as well. They can sign him to the long-term extension. You get Pete Alonso and, and maybe you're able to figure out an extension with him. Like you're, you're right. I mean, talk about this Blue Jays team being desperate today. They, they have a guy that was in AAA three weeks ago hitting fourth for them. They're desperate to win a baseball game. That, right. would, be, that would be the desperation move of all desperation moves, trading Vladdy in the couple of years of team control and, and his standing in the community here for, you know, a guy that's uh, one of the, the best sluggers in, in all of baseball next season. And, and so to, to back it up a little bit, I, I think that it's both, it's both shocking in some level to, to entertain it and also – standard operating procedure. Mm-hmm. If you are if you have a player that you have wanted to sign or at least had some conceptual conversations with his camp about and you've not gotten to the finish line of an extension and you've got 2 years left before he becomes a free agent, you're supposed to consider options for him. That's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that uh, Alonzo, I, I could actually see that making some sense. When you, when you look at things, uh, to your point, the Mets probably would have to give you a bit more because it is one year for two years. The Mets and Steve Cohen, I don't think they expect to be uh, out of the, the contending picture for them beyond maybe 2024. So then they would at least have one year of, of Laddie there as a, as, as a contending team in 25. There's something in that deal for everyone. And, and I really look at it and say, if you don't have the player signed, you have to consider moving him now. Remember where we were. This is Go back and check the, the Fan 590 archives from you know, 2015, 16, 17, when, when the Jays didn't have Donaldson signed. When you look back at Josh Donaldson, they, they weren't able to get him signed to, the, to that long-term deal that he wanted, certainly. And they, they took this right to the limit. And at the end of the day, there was almost, because of injury, of course, and underperformance, there was almost no market for him. So you, you, we ask ourselves now, did the Jays wait too long to trade him? The answer is obviously yes, they did. And it's not, no two situations are exactly alike, but there would have been a lot of emotional hurt feelings potentially by the fans if the Jays had moved Donaldson when he was two years away from free agency. And guess what? It would have been the right deal with looking back on it in hindsight. And I think that that's basically where the Jays are at with Vladdy. I couldn't agree more. That, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love this idea, and it, it, it makes a ton of sense uh, for me. We'll see. Uh, there's still time for the Blue Jays to save their season uh, this year, and, and boy, that, that would change the conversation, obviously, going into the offseason, especially if they got into the playoffs and, and who would discount the possibility of this Blue Jays team going on a roll. That's the other thing that's frustrating about this team, John, is that the you can see the pieces there, right? Like they have this great starting staff. They got they, they beefed up the back end of this bullpen, and I know they lost Eric Swanson 
uh, to a back injury. But, you know, they got a guy that throws 103 now to back up Jordan Romano. You can maybe squeeze, what, like nine outs out of Jordan Romano and Jordan Hicks at the end of a, a playoff baseball game. And you got Kevin Gossman and a, and Yusei Kikuchi, who's looked great since the All-Star break, and Jose Barrios and, and Chris Bat. Like, you've got the pieces there. And then on paper, like... Yeah, Vlad, even if he was just the, the same guy he was a year ago, and if George Springer was playing towards his career norms, which maybe we're headed towards, I mean, the, are the pieces not there for them if they get into the playoffs to make some noise there? Well, they absolutely are. I, I think that, that there is still a lot to like about this team. Uh, and, and that's where I want to separate the conversation between how you would rationally look at this roster and, and maneuver it in November and December between that and what's still possible in September. There's still a lot of possibility there for this team to, to get back into it. But you're, you're waiting for them to execute in the big moments and, and come up with, with the timely hitting that is often the hallmark of, of teams that have success in the playoffs, and they just keep falling a little short yep. you know, yesterday's game you, or you look at over the weekend and, and there was basically like a squib double down the line by Andres Jimenez that almost was the deciding factor between the Jays winning and losing the series that's basically what it was it was yep. a, a squib like 90 85 to 90 foot uh bouncer and that was it that that was what the, that was what decided this but but the, the Jays have let it get to this point the number of winnable games they have lost to arrive here to where they needed to win a series against the Guardians, uh, we could spend the whole show on it. And, and you, you look at, the, at the, the guys that really decided, or one of the main guys that decided the series, Ramon Laureano was basically a, a released player a few weeks ago, and, and here he comes now being one of the decisive players in a series that the Jays lost. So, uh, I, Ben, I, I agree with you. This team still has... Plenty of pitching. It's had probably the best run prevention in baseball. Uh, I'm not sure how yesterday's game may have skewed that total. Since the All-Star break, they've had the best pitching in the entire sport. Um, And I just think that they they now have to find a way to, I think, really focus their offensive approach without Chapman. It's going to be a huge negative for them, obviously, just without his presence in the lineup. I know he hasn't been the same productive player of late that he was early on in the season, but you're right. The point you made earlier about Davis Schneider now being the man that the offense is running through (laughs) is, is remarkable. Uh, But it's, it's been the truth. Now I do think over the weekend, you saw a couple long balls from Vladdy, a couple long balls from Springer. Maybe those are are very good signs for them. But tonight I want to make sure that we really underline and point this out. They're facing a pitcher in, in Josiah Gray, who's having a breakout year. He's an all-star. Uh, the Nationals have been one of the best teams in the National League since the all-star break. This is not one of those games and one of those series where you should look at the standings and say, wow, the Nationals are also runs in, in the NL East, and this is going to be an e- easy series. No chance. Mm-hmm. This is a very good team. It's playing good baseball, irrespective of what their record says right now. And, and Josiah Gray is, is a tough tough matchup uh for the jays especially for their right-handed bats yeah everybody seems to be a tough matchup for the blue jays right now frankly but but yeah the point is is well made all right before we let you go i do want to get your thought on shohei otani who has some form of of ucl injury is not yet decided i guess whether or not he will have tommy john surgery he continues to hit though which is unbelievable 
He's headed towards uh, what still might be a record-setting, record-breaking free agency period. Um, what do you think teams are thinking as, as he hits the open market that maybe he's a, a, a one-way player again? Can can he continue to hit if he's recovering from Tommy John in the offseason? Like, this is a really, really interesting scenario now. Well, you're right, Ben, and, and this is a multi-layered answer is the best I can tell you. I think, number one, we need to really figure out what surgery is he going to have if he is going to have surgery? How extensive will it be? How many months on the recovery timetable? You know, if he opts for the internal bracing procedure, which some have suggested, um, and maybe it's a possibility, that would be a shorter recovery timetable, and he'd probably have an easier chance of, of still being an offensive player while recovering. So there are a lot of variables here. Do I think that he's going to hit a $500 million, $600 million guaranteed deal? I don't right now. I really don't. Not this offseason. Is there a way that, that he signs a deal that's a shorter guarantee that becomes guaranteed? If, if for example, uh, let's, let's say he signs a two-year deal um, for $40 million per with the idea that those two years he's going to be a, a rehabilitating pitcher and a DH. And then if he's able to, in 2025, start X number of games, then all of a sudden the rest of the deal becomes guaranteed and maybe he gets back to that level that we talked about before. But I, I don't think this is going to be the, the financial bonanza that we were expecting um, pre-injury. Uh, I, I do think that in some ways, Ben, this introduces more uncertainty to where he might actually go. I think before the injury, we would have, we would have said, Dodgers and Angels clear one and two, but maybe there are some other teams that get involved. Maybe it's the Mariners who are playing great baseball right now, very entertaining ball in the American League West. Or maybe it's a team that has a, a very proven track record of helping guys come back from their second Tommy John surgery. All of these things become possible, but what I do think, Ben, is enough uncertainty has entered the picture here to where the half-a-billion-dollar deal guaranteed, ironclad, I don't see that happening anymore, at least not this offseason. Yeah, it'd be a major roll of the dice, that's for sure. Uh, John, always enjoy uh, our conversations. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. We'll, we'll, we'll keep workshopping those <laughs> those Vladdy trade ideas one way or the other. But if, if the Jays make the World Series, maybe it's a little bit of a, a tougher trade to make. Yeah, uh, yeah. You lock them up to a 100-year deal if, if they win the World Series. There that's you go. Sure. Amen. <laughs> see you, John. All right, there's John Morosi, MLB Network. Yes, we did it. We cracked the code. Because, yeah, I've been jabbering on about this for many weeks. It's kind of my hobby horse, the Vlad trade. Which, again, for the uninitiated, no offense to Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who's only 24, who put forth the best offensive season in the American League in 2021. Albeit, there are some differentiating factors around that season that eh, do raise the eyebrows a little bit. But whatever, even last year, good player. Not like otherworldly, not in the MVP conversation, but boy, honestly, if, if the Blue Jays had the 2022 version of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in 2023, we'd be talking about a team with a very different record. That being said, he ain't Pete Alonso, who continues to be one of the best sluggers in all of Major League Baseball. Now, there is a significant age gap between the two. Pete Alonso is about to be 29 in December. And in fact, spent some time this season on the injured list, but for the majority of his career, been a pretty durable player. Here is home run totals in full seasons. 53, 
37, 40, and this year, 39. Now, albeit this year he's having his worst batting average season, but it's all good because the guy walks a ton. Um, and he hits the ball out of the ballpark. Last year, eighth in National League MVP voting. Now, in the long term, like three, four years down the line, who's going to be the better player? Well, I would hope that it's the guy who's still in his 20s and not the guy that's going to be 33, 34. But John's right to not only talk about the shrinking window for this Blue Jays team, but the pressure that this front office is going to be under, especially if they miss the playoffs. Now, this is all caveat, 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 like we were doing with Team Canada basketball. It's the opposite way where, like, yeah, Blue Jays make the playoffs, win that wild card round even. Different story. You're probably running it back. But if they miss the playoffs, which is, even if you tell me that this is an aberration season, and boy, is George Springer ever going to hit into such tough luck again? And boy, are the Blue Jays ever going to have such a low batting average with runners in scoring position again? Boy, who cares? Okay, that, that maybe takes you from winning the division to like into a wild card spot. It doesn't take you outside of the playoff picture when everybody makes the playoffs. This team at the moment, not nearly good enough. Not a playoff team for a team that was supposed to win 90 plus games. That was supposed to compete for a World Series. For a team that has the best ERA or second best ERA in all of baseball and top five in, in franchise history. So if that happens, the Blue Jays miss the playoffs, nothing should be off the table. And I don't think I'd hesitate much at all to pull the trigger on a Vlad for Pete Alonso trade, a guy who's played in one, a very difficult place to hit at City Field. That's this tough. It is not a hitter's ballpark and a tough market, of course. And all he's done is year after year after year produced. And if we take Max Scherzer at his word, and there hasn't been too much of a, a pushback from the Mets themselves about next year being like a transitional season for the Mets after, you know, paying a half billion dollars on, on payroll for a team that stinks this year. Pete Alonso probably not all that interested in playing his final season before free agency in Queens. And there are plenty of rumors that he is to be had this offseason as a trade candidate. And for a, a Mets team that's looking to just like regroup, take a, a deep breath after one disappointing season and then get back at it in 2025, trading for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and his two years of team control at 24 years old and then re-signing him, I think that makes it a lot easier to swallow for Mets fans taking a step back. If it's him and Francisco Lindor and then a bunch of young guys for a team with lower expectations next season, oh boy, I love this trade. With all my heart. And it makes way too much sense. It's never going to happen, of course. But it makes way too much sense. Tell me where I'm wrong. Where's the flaw? You can't respond because there isn't one. It's the perfect baseball trade. All right. When we come back, kind of the perfect extension for Austin Matthews. I mean, not perfect if you're a Leafs fan, obviously. You wanted an eight-year extension at, you know, League minimum. Um, but this is about as perfect as it's going to get. Is Yeah, Austin Matthews has the highest average annual value in the National Hockey League at 13 and a quarter 
million bucks a season. And yeah, it's only four years on top of the one that he still has on his previous deal. But boy, I, I expected so much drama this offseason in Leafs land, and it still exists in the form of William Nylander. But this thing felt like it was done the minute the season ended for the Leafs. I will talk to our pal, Justin Bourne of Real Kipper and Bourne next. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sportsnet 590 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Blue Jays and Nationals getting set to uh, play first game of this three-game series down at a wide-open Rogers Center. I'm watching BP right now. David Schneider hitting fourth, playing third base. Why not? Uh, George Springer back, leading off. Um, so never did I imagine that this summer would be so drama-free when we're talking about Austin Matthews. Honestly, I, I thought there would be some back and forth. There would be you know reports out of different pockets about different demands and uh, things looking not so great and then things looking good and then back. No, like ever since we started talking about this thing very differently than the, the William Nylander extension conversations, it really felt like this is kind of where we'd, we'd end up 13.25 AAV taking Austin Matthews through the 2027, 28 season, uh, killing some content. Uh, it is a Justin Bourne of Real Kipper and Bourne. You know, it's a big deal when you guys record an emergency podcast. Thanks for doing this, pal. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I'll, I'll be honest. When they reached out to me to ask if I would do it, I didn't think there's a chance Kip would be in, but boom, <laughs> Kipper was down. <laughs> awesome. And uh, and the world rejoiced. Uh, it was spectacular. And we love hearing you guys. Um, are you as surprised that I, I mean, like not surprised recently, because like I said, as soon as the reporting kind of started around this thing at the conclusion of the season, it felt like we were headed in this direction. Like, I mean, I, I really thought this off season would be focused entirely on Austin Matthews and this extension, but like there was almost no panic. Yeah. You know, I guess I'm surprised at the reaction from, I want to say more casual fans that it's not a really positive reaction. You know, like I, I played golf with uh, McKee and Kipper today. We had a little show meeting, a little plan. Mm. Um, and, you know, McKee was saying all his buddies, you know, think it's junk and why won't he sign for eight years and, you know, all this sort of, sort of stuff. And I, I don't know. Like I'm – we talked about this potential contract throughout the year a lot. And the potential numbers for Austin Matthews were very rarely as low as, as low as 13.25. Like, very typically where it could be 14, it could be 15, you know, we'll see what he wants. And it ended up being like he's here for five more seasons at a number that's going to look really good by the time this thing's all said and done. So I'm just surprised the reaction's as sort of sour as it is. Yeah, I, I, I'm surprised that anybody has something negative to say about it. And, and that being, you know, understanding, of course, that, yeah, this is now the highest-paid player in the National Hockey League, and the cap is going up in a couple of years, but it's not going up significantly next year. And, yeah, he's he's been the best five-on-five -five goal scorer since he laced up a pair of skates in the National Hockey League. That being said, though, Justin, mm. and from mm. your latest piece, uh, I will quote from you, 
I don't think there's much of an argument to be made that this contract is some sort of outlier that will hamstring the Leafs in the years to come. Uh, that that seems true. I would add parenthetically, unless there's another pandemic. Uh, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but also, like, is there any any part of you that's a little bit curious about like the lowest goals per sixty, the lowest shooting percentage of his entire career, just just taking place? Mm-hmm. Yes, a hundred percent. And you know what makes me feel better about that? You didn't give him eight years. Yeah. You know, like there is some uncertainty. You know, did he have a completely, you know, sort of an out-of-whack season for him last year? I think he did, and he still scored 40 times. But, you know, if that ends up being the player that he is, first off, I don't even know if you would call him overpaid at the dollar amount he's getting if he scores 40 goals for five straight seasons. But, you know, there is the idea that, okay, maybe he's just one of those rare guys who peaked early and he's not going to get better, and then you don't want to have him under contract till he's 34. You know, having a contract that goes five more seasons doesn't mean he can't sign five more after that or eight more after that or whatever. So I, I just feel like it's a pretty comfortable, and this is the the phrase that Matthews used so much as balance. Yeah. I see a lot of balance here for the team. They're not going to get buried by this. It's not a steal. They're not running away with this like, ha you know, but I, it's just <laughs> a pretty balanced deal. And I would say, although, I mean, what you're telling me is kind of counter to this because I, I did feel like, I don't know, public sentiment would be all in, all for this thing. I mean, Mitch Marner has been the the whipping boy for a multitude of different reasons, but I think it all started with the way that contract negotiation yeah. went down. Like, yeah. I, I think he kind of played the PR perfectly here, don't you? Yeah, that's a big part of it too. And I think a really good point by you, like an undervalued aspect is like, this isn't going to drag into the season. It, you know, once it goes long, people start calling you names for not signing already. You know, like that's Nylander, right? Like he yep. had that interview with American Friedman. He went, what's the big deal? And everyone <laughs> went, you, you're the big deal. We hate you now. You know, like the longer it goes on, the more people get frustrated at you. And so for Matthews, it was like, wasn't in a huge rush. Got to know Brad Tree living, got to know what their plan for the organization is, liked it. You know, signed a deal with a, a month and a half till there's a hockey game. I think it's great. It's really well handled, and he did that in both cases, right? His last contract too, which didn't work out well for the Leafs financially, maybe, but um, that was pandemic related. But yeah, well, well played PR. And so now it comes down to Willie and Mitch, who already take a harder time from the public. If they want to drag it out and be difficult again, you can imagine how sentiment can turn quickly. Yeah, but if I were to guess, and it's not fair to do this, like talking about people's personalities and, and what if impacts them, like, I, I do feel like Mitch Marner uh, felt it more or would feel it more, the, the public yes. uh, scorn <laughs> compared to, oh God, to yes. <laughs> William Nylander. Really, really doesn't care. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> do, do we think William Nylander would mind at all if he had to sign an, uh, a seven-year you know, AAV of $15 million in Arizona like after this yeah. season? Like, I, I, th- I think we're cool with that so i mean i'll ask you the question because i have to like do you think the fact that like just quite factually austin matthews signed for less than he could have gotten in free agency impacts the 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 kneelander negotiation in any tangible way I, you know, I think if you're a Nylander's agent and your only goal is to make as much money as possible, you can point to Matthews and say, 
okay, we're trying to get, you know, 4 million less than this guy or 3 million less. Like our client scored the same amount of goals as him last year. And, you know, and that's kind of what they yeah. do. So, you know, how can you say he's worth, you know, two thirds of the value? He's a little closer to that actual number. So I, I think there's a case for Nylander's camp to say that they're worth it. And I think the Leafs are well within their, you know, they're well within their limits to say yes. Um, but basically we just... I forget what I was trying to say, Ben. But the point is, you know, for old Willie, it, it feels like he could ask for more if he wants to, but I just don't think it's going to go well for him with perception of the Leafs. No, it's not. Um, I mean, he could just play out the season and they can watch him wave goodbye at the end of the year or they can re-engage in contract negotiations. And hey, if the, the Leafs win a Stanley Cup, well, okay, maybe they are willing uh, to give him, you know, double-digit AAV on, on an extension because yeah. nothing matters. Like, if they win a Stanley Cup, everybody, <laughs> like, extensions for everybody uh, forever and ever and ever. I mean, but this is also a guy in pr uh, Brad Tree Living who knows that the, the pain, the hurt of watching guys walk away in free yeah. agency without compensation. Like, do you think that is... A likely outcome here that we just see the, the the last year of William Nylander under under this contract and he hits free agency at the end of the year? I don't know. I, I think there's such like a history of Toronto here, and he would be aware of this, of the team buckling to these players, that I think there's the opportunity for Tree Living to dig in and say, if Willie wants to play hardball, we're happy to trade him for someone else. I, I really feel like the Nylander thing is a lot more perilous than it was last time. Before it was like, how are you going to let Nylander go? He could be this, he could be that. You know, you just didn't want to give up on him before you had a look at what he could be. Willie's not going to get better than Willie was this past year, but he was really good this past year. Yeah. But I still think, you know, you have the opportunity to take that season to another team and say, you know, he's digging into us for 10. If you want to give him 10, we're happy to take one of your nice <laughs> defensemen off your hands uh, and, and show that you're going to, you'll play hardball a little bit more than Dubas did. I mean, in theoretical sense, does, I mean, and without naming it, this is such a stupid question, but I'm going to continue asking it because I already started and I can't, I can't back out now. Uh, <laughs> uh, taking William Nylander uh, and his value in trade and creating, you know, taking a, a William Nylander equivalent, putting it on the blue line for this, this Maple Leafs team, is that not a better hockey team? Yeah. Well, it, it really depends how the new additions step in like if Bertuzzi is a 30 goal guy and Domi gets you 20 then you, you feel pretty good about your ability to score and yeah you're definitely better with someone like that on the back end it's you know looking around the league and trying to find a guy that you know is it Brett Pesci in Carolina is mm -hmm. Hannafin good enough to justify it in Calgary no you know <laughs> like there's like all these guys where it's like in theory, you're right, but trying to find that right marriage with a trade partner is a significant challenge when you really start looking around the league and everyone's salary cap situations. Uh, back to Matthews for a second here, and, and I, I, I never know whether this is just like fan speak and something that, that interests uh, fans of the Toronto Maple Leafs because, yeah, there's a lot of history uh, with, with the fans of hockey in this city and that franchise in particular and the, the uniform, the jersey means something, and seeing the sea means something and whether that's just a fan thing that that they think about or whether the players really really do value that thing and i would go back to like the video of of kyle dubas handing the jersey over to john tavares and and how emotional everybody seemed to be in that moment to, if, for evidence that it actually does mean something now john tavares is still a toronto maple leaf for at least two more seasons i uh, as a complete no move clause but now austin matthews is just factually under contract for longer than him and i 
unless he takes the minimum and returns. But even if that's the case, like beyond the, the, the two years, it really does feel like Austin Matthews is going to be the next captain of this Toronto Maple Leafs team. Is you think there's any argument to be made that maybe he should just be handed the C this offseason? You know, I think there's a, a good argument to be made, and I think that the fact that you have a new GM, it's easier for him to come in and say, hey, you know, like, I know Dubas had his way of doing things. Here's how I see things, and, you know, this is why it's going to be different. So I think he could make that case. On the other hand, really hard when the guy is still in the locker room and making $11 million and yeah. is John Tavares <laughs> to just, like, minimize him in that way. So, But it's it's strange, right? Because let's be honest – if the Tavares stood up in the room and said one thing and Matthews stood up and said the other thing, I got to believe the guys are following the Hart Trophy winner who's the face of not just the franchise but one of the faces of the league. Like, So it's a, it is a, a delicate balance. I think it's probably easier to just not upset the apple cart and let everyone know. You know, just let everyone understand who really is the captain of the team until it's time to give him the C. I think it, it's pretty awkward to go ahead and do it publicly. Yeah, yeah, to actually physically take the C off the jersey is a tough yeah. one. That's a tough one. All right, uh, before they go, so you play golf today. Uh, yes. I, I, I don't know if you saw me tweeting up the story of this guy, Alejandro Tosti. Did you see him, the Corn Ferry Tour guy? No. Okay, so this guy leads the Corn Ferry Tour, which for people who don't follow golf is the like the minor leagues with the PGA Tour and the, I think it's the top 20 on the money list earn their PGA Tour cards for the coming season. He's at the top. He's already clinched his card for next season. Okay. This guy is going to be on the PGA Tour next season. He's from Argentina. Apparently, he uh, learned how to play golf in his backyard when he was a kid with a charcoal stick and a ping pong ball. <laughs> so he was in the last tournament suspended in the middle of the tournament. Like he finished his first round. I think he shot a 67 was like in contention. They're like, you're out of here because he's insane. Like his playing partner hit his ball into the trees and then took too long to find it. And he was like screaming at him. He was screaming at the fans. He's been, uh, he, he's no. thrown his club and knocked uh, T markers over. Um, he's, he's Get like, him on the tour. We need him. <laughs> he's yelling at his caddy and to this i would say a hundred percent yeah th this is aren't we in happy gilmore land i i get it like when you're playing with your buddies you don't want to see this but this is like the entertainment business don't you want to see this dude oh, continue to do this on the pga tour give me a toasty shirt do i can i get a jersey <laughs> that's i mean that sounds thrilling for golf we could really use that infusion you know i i even when you get slightly fiery guys you see tyrell hatton or yeah. john rom or some of these guys that have the potential to boil over it's oh it's electric it's like ooh. you know he's starting to get frustrated watch 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 so yeah if we can get this guy on tour man i'm i'm all about it yeah, I've never seen him even take a swing, but he's already my favorite uh, PGA Tour golfer for for next season. I, I, go, I hope, Toasty, go. <laughs> yeah, I hope, I hope the him, full man. swing, they follow him for a documentary. Yeah, unfortunately, Bob Barker's dead. Or, yeah, we, we should we, we should have <laughs> teamed them up for the, the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. Uh, anyways. Bob Barker, what a legend. Yeah, a shout-out. Uh, Borny, thanks, uh, as always, for doing this, pal. No problem. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you again. See ya. There's Justin Later. Bourne. Real Kipper and Bourne. I mean, now that I bring up Bob Barker, you may have also noticed that I tweeted out pictures of uh, myself with The Price is Right in 2007. No big deal. Saw Bob Barker's 10th to last taping of The Price is Right, which was, without exaggerating, one of the highlights of my entire life. It was unbelievable. Truly, truly remarkable. Um, and part of my feelings in that moment might have been related to the fact that I had to stay up all night in line to get into... The Price is Right, considering how high the demand was to see Bob Barker 
uh, in his final tapings. But man, that was un freaking believable and he was the greatest of all time when it comes to uh, game show hosts all right back to the the topic at hand before we wrap it up, uh wrap it up and talk a little blue jays here um the captain thing it's not a it's it's not a fan creation okay again go back and and i'm sure it's available on youtube there was a real uh, a whole behind the scenes vignette about not the decision making necessarily when it came to awarding the captain uh, the captain seat to John Tavares but like the lead up and what it meant and getting the jersey ready and they got a jersey ready for John Tavares's young child and John Tavares yeah he took less to be a Toronto Maple Leaf this is his hometown team and what's better than that wearing the C for your hometown team so is it more than likely that Austin Matthews very much wants to be the captain of this hockey team and, in fact, is waiting for his moment to be named captain? Yeah. And I get it's awkward, right? Because you are physically taking the captaincy away from a guy who chose to be a member of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I guess Austin Matthews did choose to re-sign with the Toronto Maple Leafs. But, yeah. There was a little more stress involved with John Tavares leaving a team he was already a captain of uh, and and gave that team no assurances that he was going to resign, but they could have easily traded him at the deadline instead decided to walk away in free agency. I get it. Like, there's a lot of, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what-have-yous with taking the captaincy away from John Tavares. But, I mean, is there any question now that this is Austin Matthews' team? Is there any question that when John Tavares is no longer a member of the Toronto Maple Leafs, which should, could and probably will be as soon as two seasons from now, not after this season, but after the next, that Austin Matthews will be the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like, yeah, why mess around? Just give him the, the captaincy right now. And in, in regards to William Nylander, this is tough because you are talking about human beings and reading into, I don't know, I don't know if you're talking about their moral fiber or, you know, what motivates them. And you've heard enough reports and you've heard enough interviews to, I think, make some some assessments about what motivates William Nylander. He wants to win. Like, nobody's questioning that William Nylander wants to win. But, I mean, all you have to do is go back to the first contract negotiation in which he was pretty obviously willing to sacrifice an entire season of playing in the National Hockey League to get... His, in the form of the value that he thought he deserved in a contract. And he waited out Kyle Dubas, as many have, and many will continue to do, and got his. And he played poorly in the half of the season that he ended up playing, and yeah, it's probably not wise for all parties that it went down to the wire. But we know this guy is unlikely to move off of his price. You know what? Not dissimilar to Masai Ujiri. And... Maybe it's kept Masai Ujiri and the Raptors from making trades that they should have made, but the word is around the NBA that this guy's not to be trifled with when it comes to negotiating. I think the Maple Leafs very much know that if William Nylander thinks he's worth a certain amount, then William Nylander is likely to either get that amount or not sign his contract. And he's under contract for one more year. And at the conclusion of this season, we'll be going into a, a season in the National Hockey League in, 
24-25, in which the salary cap is going to actually be going up significantly. And more and more teams bidding for his services. And while, like, Mitch Marner's negotiating tactic was, hey, I'm a restricted freight, maybe I'll sign an offer sheet with the Columbus Blue Jackets. Did anyone really believe that the guy from Toronto was going to willingly not play for the Toronto Maple Leafs to play for the Columbus Blue Jackets? There was never a chance. And eventually ends up signing and, and not missing any regular season games. But, yeah, that was dramatic. William Nylander, I could absolutely 100% see what I just described. Him going into free agency, telling all interested parties, give me your best offer. I'm taking the top dollar. Which, who would fault him? Guess what? i do the same. Probably. I mean, depending on how many, many millions I'd made before free agency. So it, it feels like it's headed one of two ways. Either he's traded before the season or he walks away for nothing in free agency because Maple Leafs can't afford to pay what he's worth on the open market as long as he re, uh, replicates what he did this past season. All right, Blue Jays and Washington Nationals getting set for the uh, first of three games down at Rogers Center. And as we heard from John Morosi, this is... Not your father's national team, although your father's national team might have been winning a World Series. It's not that one either, though. Um, they're 25 and 16 since the All Star break. This is not a team that's a walkover, although, who's a walkover for this Blue Jays team at the moment, anyways? And they are starting their lone All Star today in Josiah Gray, who's having a breakout season. And the Blue Jays, in their most dire hour, I've decided, and I, I can't fault them for it. In fact, I would probably suggest it. Davis Schneider hitting cleanup for this baseball team and George Springer returning to form as the leadoff hitter for this Ju uh, Blue Jays team. So it's been a disaster. I mean, a mitigated disaster to this point in the season. They find themselves on the outside of the playoffs looking in. There's still time to turn it around. But I would say the most likely scenario is probably not Davis Schneider continuing to do what he has done in his limited time in the major leagues. You know what it is? It's kind of what we saw over the weekend. And the guys that are, one, getting paid the big bucks in George Springer, and two, being the face of this franchise, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., reaching or perhaps exceeding their expected production this season. I would have said the same about Matt Chapman, but he's on the 10-day injured list. And by the way... I mean, you can talk about Shohei Otani maybe lopping off a couple hundred million dollars in free agency, having uh, a, a screwed up UCL, and maybe being a one-way player this offseason. Yeah, he's still going to get his $300 million. I wouldn't be the, the team to stick my hand up and say, yeah, Matt Chapman is uh, the solution for the next decade at the hot corner for me. And you know what actually might make some sense? With no clear line of succession for the Blue Jays, considering the market now... It's not a super deep one, but maybe, and especially if this injury keeps Matt Chapman out for a prolonged period of time, or like maybe he's not able to return this season, maybe you see one of those soft landing spot, like regroup and, and regain your, your free agent value, one-year deal things between Matt Chapman and the Toronto Blue Jays, not unlike uh, Cody Bellinger deal with the Chicago Cubs, which is going to pay him handsomely as he becomes one of the, the most attractive free agents this offseason. But it's up to George Springer. It's up to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. 
and to a lesser extent, Danny Jansen and Alejandro Kirk, who have kind of, Jansen not so much because he's come up with some big home runs and some big hits and big opportunities, but the biggest difference or the biggest variation off of what the expected results were for this Blue Jays team is, is Springer and, and Vlad, but it's the catchers too, man. This was one of the best hitting teams in baseball when it came to uh, getting production out of the catcher position. Just hasn't happened this season, and yeah, they got to figure it out without their best player. Bobichet, by the way, going to have an MRI on that leg to figure out next steps, but currently listed as day-to-day. So Ernie Clement, your new Blue Jays shortstop for game one, at least, of this series against the Washington Nationals. You know what's next? A little program I like to call Blair and Barker. I'll be back tomorrow. I'm Ben Ennis. This has been the Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan.